Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Today, really is going to set up the next seven weeks. I, uh, I have a lot of work to get through, so we just need to jump right in. So as Mark mentioned a moment ago and Katie read for us, we're beginning what's called the seven I am sayings of Jesus in John's gospel. And I'll get more into that in a moment. If you wonder why are we talking about the I am sayings, which emphasize Jesus's divinity, his humanity, and the exclusivity of him and him alone. Why are we emphasizing him alone as our savior? There's a couple of reasons. One, the Bible makes it unbelievably clear In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter is preaching, and he says, sorry, Acts chapter 4, he says, essentially, there is no name under heaven by which men might be saved except that the name of Jesus and Jesus only. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, Paul says very plainly, there is one mediator between God and human beings. It's the man Christ Jesus. The Bible is unbelievably clear that Jesus And Jesus alone is God and is the Savior as we call out on him. So that's one. Um, Two, we've all asked ourselves over the last seven or eight years, maybe longer, we've all asked ourselves, how did we get here? (laughs) I don't care if you're Democrat, Libertarian, Republican, we've all said this out loud to our mom or dad or somebody on the phone at some point. How did we get here? And it doesn't matter if you're 15 or 25 or 55. We have looked around at various moments, looked at our phone or saw something on a screen and gone, how did we get here as a society? We are more violent, intolerant, anxious, unkind, unaccepting, honestly, than maybe we've ever been. And yet at the same time, we tell ourselves these lies like, no, we're actually becoming more tolerant and kind and accepting. But it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that way at all. And so how did we get here? I want to take just a moment and kind of trace a generic, not not super generic, we'll read Nietzsche in a minute, but like uh, a generic overarching kind of way in which Western thought has kind of evolved over the last roughly 1,500 years. Trying to answer, how did we get here? Is there any hope? And yes, guess who the hope is? Guess who I'm going to say? There we go, God. God is our hope. Bingo. All right, so let's begin with kind of thinking about thinking. about thinking. All right, first slide. From the Middle Ages up through the Reformation, um, it was Thomas Aquinas who wrote in Summa Theologica in around 1215 AD. It's a massive tome. He summarized Western thought as saying, theology is essentially the queen of the sciences. That is, God was assumed in the modern Western conscience to be able to explain almost everything that we experience in this world. You answer everything in relation to God, whether Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, or even people that did not necessarily believe 
in the God of the Bible, they would say something in reference to some kind of theistic ideology, okay? So he explained, well, what's a human? People would say things like, somebody that's made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, They're social, communicative, responsible, stewards of creation. Something along those lines would say that's what they are. Human beings, men and women, are made in the image and likeness of God. Well, what about work? And I just picked like top five things. I didn't like go into lots of stuff for the sake of our attention spans and all the rest. But work, how would you explain work? Well, people would say something like, well, work is a good thing. God gave us work to do. So if you go back and read Genesis, work isn't the curse. Work came before the curse. God gave us work as a good thing and it fell under the curse. So people would say, oh, work is what we do. And the idea is to serve our neighbor ultimately with our work, not just priests and churches, but the, the mailman, that, that, that too, all work mattered. Okay. Justice. Well, how would we talk about justice as a society in general? We'd say, well, justice is essentially, uh, carried out by a state that God ordained to determine right and wrong. And so that's how justice would be carried out. Okay. Medicine. How, well, okay. Well, in reference to God as our primary agent and how we understand reality, medicine, medicine's a common grace of God. We have Dr. Luke traveling around with Jesus. Jesus calls himself the great physician. Even when we anoint people with oil in the church, that's a tip of the hat, not just to setting somebody apart for God, but it was a tip of the hat to the medical community as a whole. People thought about medicine in general in relation to God. Education, oh, well, all truth is God's truth. So, yeah, we should better ourselves as people in relation to God as as we educate ourselves. Okay, these are all good things. And that's kind of how the world worked. And yes, it was fraught with all kinds of problems. I know that's when the crusades were going on. I did catch that in church history. Uh, There was a lot of things wrong with the world. So I'm not saying like, and this was perfect. Everybody did this perfect. But I'm just saying, generically speaking, that's kind of how Western conscious thought worked. Okay. Up through the Reformation. Then we get to the Enlightenment era, the 18th century. This is the dawn of the scientific age. The Industrial Revolution happens. This is when Rene Descartes, Cartesian thought, began to become popularized. I think, therefore, I am. Okay, now that begins to take the throne, so to speak, of how we thought as a people. This was where uh, Frederick Nietzsche, we'll get to him now, Nietzsche coined the the famous phrase, God is dead. And this is where it comes from. It's in his parable uh, called The Madman. I'll read it to you. Have you ever heard of the madman who on a bright morning lighted a lantern and ran out into the marketplace calling out unceasingly, I seek God, I seek God. As there were many people standing about who did not believe in God, he caused a great deal of amusement. Why? Is he lost? Said one. Has he strayed away like a child? Said another. Does he keep or does he keep himself hidden? Is he afraid of us? Has he taken a sea voyage? Has he immigrated? The people cried out laughingly, all in a hubbub. 
That's a good 18th century word. The insane man jumped into their midst, transfixed them with his glances. Where's God gone? He called out. I mean to tell you, we've killed him. You and I were all his murderers. But how have we done it? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we loosened this earth from its sun? Whither does it now move? Whither do we move away from all suns? Do we not dash on unceasingly backwards and sideways and forwards in all directions? Is there still an above and a below? Do we not stray as though through infinite nothingness does not empty space breathe upon us? Has it not become colder? Does not night come on continually darker and darker? Shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? Do we not hear the voice of the, do we not hear the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell the divine putrefaction for even God's putrefied? God is dead. God remains dead and we've killed him. How shall we console ourselves? The most murderous of all murderers, the holiest and the mightiest that the world has hitherto possessed has bled to death under our knife. Who will wipe away the blood from us? With what water will we cleanse ourselves? What lustrums or what sacred games shall we have to devise? Is not the magnitude of this deed too great for us? Shall we not ourselves have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? There never was a greater event. And on account of it, who are born after us belong to a higher history than any history hitherto, here the madman was silent, and he looked again at his hearers, and they were silent, and looked at him in surprise. At last he threw his lantern on the ground so that it broke in pieces, extinguished. I come too early, he said. I'm not yet at the right time. This prodigious event is still on its way, and it's traveling, and it's not yet reached men's ears. Lightning and thunder need time. The light of the stars need time. Deeds need time. Even after they're done to be seen and heard. This deed is as yet further from them as the furthest star. And yet they've done it. It's further stated that the madman made his way into different churches on the same day. And there intoned his requiem aternum deo. When let out and called to account, he always gave the reply. What are these churches now if they're not the tombs and the monuments of God? And that is the 18th century's contribution to modern thought. God is dead and we killed him. And now we have to be gods too. It takes time for this idea to get around, but we've gotten there. So how do you answer What's a human in the 18th century? Well, we say homo sapien. And a human being is nothing more than time plus chance plus matter who has evolved purely without any cause, no divine cause, just we're here and we come from nothing and we're headed to nothing and therefore this present moment means absolutely nothing except for whatever I fill it with. And it'll be about survival of the fittest. And if my survival depends on your demise, then so be it. How did that century play out? Pol Pot, killing fields of Cambodia. South African apartheid. Nazi Germany. We can kind of keep on going. When God is dead, so is everybody else. 
Welcome to church. So, homo sapien. And then we go, well, what's work? Well, here's what work is. Work is just merely a means to survival. There's no real purpose in vocation. It's just what I do to put bread on my table. What's justice? Well, it's we're working with the ever-evolving ethics of the day. After all, we're evolving, and so must our ethics. So we're just going to work with what we got. Medicine is to be reserved for the higher class. Education. Well, if it can serve this industry, then we're into it. Again, just painting with broad, broad brushes, I know. But then what happens? Oh, well, we get now our post-truth society. And in a post-truth society, we have lost all sense. And we're just pulling pictures off our phones, by the way. Like, I didn't come up with this. Your phone did it. Okay? I'm not singling anybody out or trying to be ugly or unkind, but it's time to start talking very plainly in a world that feels very disoriented. God is not disoriented, and he's not mincing words about right and wrong and truth and life and death and all the rest. Like, he's just not. And as much as our society insists on living in the gray, God does not live only in the gray. He keeps his mysteries his own, but he causes people to walk in the light. And he made himself abundantly clear in the person and the work of Jesus. And the church lives in response to him. So just to say that for what it is. In a post-truth society, the self, one's own autonomy, now sits on the throne. It's not God. And it's not physical science. It's oneself. Self-actualization. Self-determining individuals. That's where we are as a society. So now, when you ask, what's a person? The answer is, I don't know. I don't know what a person is. I don't know what a person is. Of all the things that would break God's heart, it would be his image bearers being confused about looking at one another going, I don't know what you are. I don't know. We've never actually been good at answering this question anyway. Here in our country, pointed a black man in 1840 where I grew up and you say, what's he? And the answer is three-fifths human. Or you can stand in our city today and point at a pregnant woman and say, how about this? What's this? And the answer is always just a choice to be made. So whether it's from womb or tomb, we've never been good at answering the question is, what are we? But God has this beautiful book that he's responded so crystal clear. You're the crown of my creation. I've made you in my image and likeness. I love you from eternity past to eternity future. And I have moved on your behalf that you might flourish as my image bearers. So what's work? Well, work is a place where I self-actualize. It's a place for fun. What's justice? 
whatever matches my hashtag that won't get me canceled. What's medicine? <sighs> we'll go back to the justice piece, I guess. Because if you got the shot, you really blew it there. Oh, you didn't get the shot? Oh, you really blew it there. I want to just turn everything into just this never-ending fight. Aren't you tired? Don't you hope that somebody would come on the scene and said, if you're weary, come to me. I'll give you rest. Education? Oh, well, education, education uh, is about serving our own ends. So what I mean by that is education is not a place where we actually surrender ourselves to have our minds challenged and shaped and learn how to form new ideas and all the rest and have our old ideas refined and some of them need to go and some of them need to be straightened out and sharpened. Now, education is you tell me what I already believe or you're canceled. That's how we work as a society. And it's like, gosh, okay, we got John the baptizer here today. Where'd you come from? But it's how it really feels as a society. In a book that my wife made me read, um, in a good way, in a good way, called The Coddling of the American Mind. This is what we read. Zachary Wood, a left-leaning African-American student at Williams College in Massachusetts, led the Uncomfortable Learning Series. Like Socrates, Wood wanted to expose students to ideas that they would otherwise not encounter in order to spur them to better thinking. In October 2015, Wood inv invited Suzanne Vechner, a conservative critic of feminism and an advocate of traditional gender roles, to speak as part of the series. Wood's co-organizer, Matthew Hennessy, explained, we chose Venker because millions of Americans think her viewpoints carry weight or even agree with her. We think it's important to get an understanding of why so many Americans do these really interesting, or do think these really interesting and difficult thoughts so we can challenge them and better understand our own behaviors than our own thoughts. The response from Williams students was so ferocious that ultimately Wood and Hennessy decided they had to cancel the event. One student wrote on a Facebook page, when you bring a misogynistic white supremacist men's rights activist to campus, in the name of dialogue and the other side, you're not only causing actual mental, social, psychological, and physical harm to students, but you are also paying for the continued dispersal of violent ideologies that kill our black and brown trans femme sisters. You know, you, hmm, know that you are dipping your hands in their blood, Zach Wood. This response clearly illustrates the cognitive distortions of catastrophizing, labelizing, Labeling, overgeneralizing, and dichotomous thinking. It's also a textbook example of emotional reasoning, as Wood himself put it when explaining the decision to cancel the lecture. When an individual goes so far to describe someone as having blood on their hands for supporting the idea of bringing a highly controversial speaker to Williams, they're advancing the belief that what offends them should not be allowed on this campus precisely because it offends them and, and the people who agree with them. Should a student say, I am offended, or I'm sorry, should a student saying, I'm offended, be sufficient reason to cancel a lecture? 
What if it's many students? What if members of the faculty are offended too? It depends on what you think is the purpose of education. Hannah Holborn Gray, the president of University of Chicago from 78 to 93, once offered this principle. Education should not be intended to make people comfortable. It's meant to make them think. This is, of course, what Zach Woods, that was Zach Woods' belief too. And Gray's principle allows us to to distinguish the provocations of Wood and Socrates from the provocations of Inopolis. Unfortunately, the president of Williams College had a different philosophy and personally intervened to cancel her invitation made to another controversial speaker. In doing so, he implicitly endorsed Misopono's uh, dictum that uncomfortable learning is an oxymoron. He might as well have posted on the sign on the entry gates to the college. Education should not be intended to make people think. It's intended to make them comfortable. I think that's true. At least where we are now. One of my friends says, if you can't say amen, just say ouch. <laughs> it really does feel that way. As a society. So what do we do? Two thousand years ago, a carpenter stood on the side of a mountain and said things like, "I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me." So let's look at these seven I am sayings of Jesus. I'm the living bread. I'm the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. We can live our lives based on him and this reality. When Jesus is found saying, I am this is how it looks in the, in the New Testament. He says, ego eimi, I am. That's how we translate it. But in the Greek, he's actually, it's, it looks a little bit like he's stuttering. Because it says, I, I am. <laughs> Which is just fantastic. <laughs> like, well, was he stuttering seven times in a row with the whole, the biggest statement he's ever going to say? I'm the light of the world. Did he stutter? Oh, he didn't stutter when he was saying that. And it's not that John didn't know how to write Greek either. Jesus is taking the divine name of God upon himself. I am the capital I, capital A, capital M. I am the I am. So when Jesus stands in the center of history, he's not stuttering. He's standing saying, I need you to come to me and me only for all that you'll ever need. In Exodus chapter 3, we have the famous scene of the burning bush. Moses had murdered a man and buried him in the sand. And Moses had ran off into the desert and was hiding. 
and he looked off onto the horizon and he saw a bush that was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And suddenly from within the bush, as he walks over to investigate, he says, I'll go over and I need to see this strange sight. He walks over to see the, the bush that's burning. Suddenly a voice comes out of the bush and he says, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals. You're now standing on holy ground. Moses was not in a temple. He was not in a sanctuary. He's out in the desert and yet something, this bush is now made the ground holy. Why? Because, because wherever God moves in, that place or person now becomes completely set apart and completely holy. People in creation don't make God holy. God makes people holy. So now take your shoes off. You're now encountering the one true living God. You're on holy ground, Moses. And Moses takes his shoes off and they begin to talk. And God says, I want you to go back into Egypt. I want you to go straight to Pharaoh. I don't want you to tell him to let my people go. And Moses starts saying, well, I can't. And Moses did have a stutter. And Moses began to say, I can't do that. I can't go talk to him. I can't do this. That's crazy. And then finally God says, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to do it. I'm going to set all the slaves free. Moses said, well, what do I tell him? Do I tell him about this bush that caught on fire? What, do I, what was your name? And God says, I am. I was, I am, and I will be. From eternity past to eternity future, I am. I'm omnipotent. I am. I have no equals, no rivals. All the gods in Babylon and all the gods in Egypt will bow down to the I am, the one true God. And Moses straightens himself up and says, all right, I'll do it. He goes right back and you know the story. The 10 plagues then begin to fall on Egypt and the people go free. And God was faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. And then the people get out into the, de the desert. And what happens? They begin to get lost and they wander. And they begin to wish they could go back to Egypt. And as they're struggling and even starving in the desert, they begin to cry out and God hears their cries. And what does God do? He provides manna in the wilderness. Bread came down from heaven, people would go out in the morning and collect this kind of, like a paste kind of substance and they could shape it into cakes and bake it and they could survive in the wilderness with nothing. God was meeting their needs and satisfying his people daily. Jesus stands at the center. Let me reread you what Katie read you a minute ago. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see what he's doing there? He's saying that God in heaven is not a stingy baker. <laughs> Going, I see you down there struggling in Seattle. You don't know your right hand from your left. You're completely confused about everything in the world. 
Figure it out. Get tough. Try harder. No, God is not a stingy baker looking at starving people. He's a loving father that says, I'll come down there and I'll feed you my very self. He didn't send another prophet or a priest or a great leader. He came down himself. When Jesus identified where he was from, did you catch that? I've come down from where? He didn't say I'm from Bethlehem and I'm from Nazareth or I spent 12 years living in Egypt as a little boy. I came down from above. He is divine, one with God as the I am. He comes down. If you don't know Jesus, let me tell you what will satisfy you. It is not another relationship. It is not more money. It is not another boat. It is not another vacation. My homie Jesse asks me all the time, how many times can we eat steak dinner anyway? (laughs) I mean, really, how many steaks can you eat before you finally start going, who cares? What are we doing? What is the point of all of this? If you don't know Jesus, Jesus says, I've come down and I'm the living bread from heaven. If you eat this bread, i.e. if you place your faith in me, if you'll believe in me, if you'll trust in me, if you'll look to me, I'll satisfy the deepest longing and ache that keeps you up at night. I will satisfy you all by myself. That's what Jesus has to offer. And I was doing the math this morning. I've known him for almost 30 years. And I can tell you, as one of his own sons, that's still true. And it's for you today. And it doesn't matter what you're addicted to. And it doesn't matter how your attitude was yesterday. And it doesn't matter how you might feel or act tomorrow. Jesus stands in the very center and says, I know, I see you for who you are and where you're at. And I give my flesh for the life of the world that you might have hope and future, a purpose, a destiny that outlives yourself, but lives to the glory of God and for the benefit of your neighbor. That's what Jesus has come to give you. And so I say it loudly and all this like flailing around and Nietzsche and all, I say it because it's true. And there's no name under heaven that we should gather under except that the name of Jesus as we celebrate him and all that he's done to bring his people back to God. And that's the truth of the gospel. So Jesus is the living bread that's come down. And here's what, it, what this isn't just like evangelism for those outside the church. If anyone needs to be evangelized, it's the church. Church, keep Eating the bread. If you want to know the secret, Paul's secret to contentment is you keep eating the bread. You keep showing up. You keep putting your faith in Jesus. Like it's one thing to trust Jesus when you're 16. Amazing. It's another thing to trust him again at 26. And 36 and 46 and 56 and on and on and on to keep coming back to the bread and going, I'm here to eat. I'm here to keep living by the person and the work of Jesus. It doesn't mean I don't get bored with the bread in the same way that the Israelites got bored with the bread in the desert. Hmm? 
And the temptation of the age is to think that the supermarket of ideas out there, there might be another loaf of bread on the shelf that will satisfy you. Let me tell you, it's stale. It's stale. Talk to any of your friends that have walked away from Jesus and tried it out and then went, it didn't do the thing. It didn't satisfy me. It left me with a stomach ache. And I, I don't want to eat that anymore. You don't have to. If you've wandered away, did you know the bread is still on the table for you? For you, especially the one that feels like Jesus is tired of you. You can't wear him out. He's the resurrection. And we don't get to talk about that for another three weeks. But so the hope of the Christian life, the sustaining strength of the Christian life is not the Christian life. It's Jesus. The Christian life is in response to Jesus to keep eating the bread. Sure. Ask your questions about the bread. Where'd the bread come from? What's the bread taste like? What's the bread like? I don't know if I like this bread. I'm frustrated with the bread. That's fine. We, that's called the church. But keep eating the bread. Keep showing up. Satisfy me, Jesus. Even in my moments where I feel like I don't know if you can. Lord, help my unbelief. Would you like to know? <clears throat> yeah. Here's what life looks like now for the Christian with bread on the throne. <laughs> a baguette. It is a baguette. Yes. With a nice ragu to go with it. Yes. How do you answer what's, an, what's a human being? It's someone made in the image and the likeness of God. I know what a human is when I look at a human. I'm not worried. I'm not questioning whether I see a man or a woman or a boy or a girl or someone born in Israel, someone born in Gaza or someone born in Atlanta or someone born in California, a human being is an image bearer of God regardless of how they think or how they believe or how they vote or whether they agree with everything I say or not. It's not even a question. They're made in the image and likeness of God. What if they're not educated? Image and likeness of God. Everything is answered by the bread on the throne. What about work? Oh, my work is redeemed. I might not have the job I want to have. I might get frustrated. In fact, I will get frustrated. There are thorns at work. It's very hard. But I labor with a purpose beyond myself, knowing that I don't live for just work. Work is not my God. The bread's on the throne. I work to the glory of God in whatever vocation I find myself in, whether it's giving out sacraments on Sunday morning or whether you're doing a spreadsheet tomorrow morning in Google. All is redeemed by the bread. Justice? How do you answer what justice is? The, hmm, the bread that I give is my flesh. For the life of the world. How do you answer what justice is? We don't go to the bakery. You go to Calvary. And how do you answer what justice is? By looking at the king. The God man. 
who did not send someone else to his cross, but went in our place for our sins to our cross that he might take away all that we'd ever done to break our relationship with God. And that's how we begin to start answering questions about justice. We look to our Messiah, Jesus, who was born into poverty, lived on the outskirts of society, and suffered in our place for our sins in order to be triumphantly resurrected by the Father. Now I start doing all my questions about what justice is in relation to the fact that somebody else took my penalty for my sin. I start there, and then I start working out the trajectory from that point. Medicine, as often as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. We start thinking about medicine, helping other people in relation to the words of Jesus. Again, we don't get to ask questions. He's the bread on the throne. (laughs) And he has only good ideas. Education, this might be the most fun. We're already out of time. But in John's gospel, the one we're covering says this at the very beginning. Most of you already know it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And there was nothing made without him that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And to as many who would believe in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. Friends, when it comes to education, Jesus says, I'm the logos. I'm the word, the wisdom, the power of God. So with education, well, you can't say any of our modern sciences without saying Jesus' name. Biology, psychology, anthropology, on and on. We have to say his name baked into every single science that we're doing. So when we start talking about even education, we're like, oh, in relation to Jesus, we got plenty. How do we know? We'll get to it later, but he says, I'm the truth. All right, that's all I got for you. Thanks for listening today. I love you all. Feel free to send me an email and we can have a coffee. I know it was a lot. All right. Woo! All right. So let's, um, let's do this. Let's do this. I would, uh, I would like to invite our communion servers forward to uh, take their places as we prepare to receive communion. As they take their places. Actually, don't move. Because we don't have to. Let me explain communion. And don't check out here, especially if you're Christian and you've heard it 10,000 times. Jesus said, my flesh is what I give for the life of the world. Jesus came down for you, church. And he gave his flesh and he poured out his blood so that we might become the children of God. As you take communion today, say to your soul, He is the bread of life. All right? If you're not a Christian today, this is the only part of our worship service we'd ask you not to participate in simply because we're not trying to withhold something from you. It's just to say this sacred meal is an outward profession of an inward reality saying we belong to Jesus. And if that's not where you're at today, we can honor where you're at today. But if you'd like to convert and follow Jesus, 
invite Jesus and say to Jesus, you can say in faith to him very simply, I don't have it all figured out. Nobody here does. But Jesus, if you're the bread of life, satisfy me. And he will. And come take your first communion with us, would you? Okay. Stand with me to your feet. Come receive whenever you're ready.